morning. We are continuing our series on the book of Romans as we look at Romans chapter 4. Um, all of it is not printed in the, in the bulletin, but we're going to read through the entire chapter 4. Um, and uh, as we continue to look at the gospel, how um, Paul celebrates the gospel, helps us understand the gospel better. And uh, one of the things that we've been really talking about the last couple weeks is the idea of righteousness. And um, since righteousness is not something that we are all really familiar with, the concept, it's, it's a little bit foreign to us, um, I want to just kind of, by introduction, I want to just review what righteousness is. And, um, and I'm going to go ahead and just steal again from the late Tim Keller to help, to, to help define this and help us understand it, because I think he really describes it and, and explains it in a really helpful way. Um, but he, he defines righteousness as validating performance record that opens doors. It's a validating performance record that opens doors. That's what righteousness is. I'll say it one more time. A validating performance record that opens doors. He, uh, that's kind of a lot of words, but if, if we all, we're all familiar with the concept. Um, if you're applying for a job, you, what do you do? You get your resume together that in, on a piece of paper, you list all of your qualifications, all of the things that you've accomplished, all of your achievements, all of your skills, and hopefully your, the, your future employer will look at that record that validates your perform, performance, and they will say, yes, we want you to be part of our company. We want to hire you. We accept you, right? Um, uh, we, we also maybe are familiar with the idea of uh, applying to, to colleges, right? If you apply to a, to a college or a graduate program or something like that, what do you do? You, you submit a validating performance record. What you, you submit your academic record to them. And based on your academic record that shows to them that you are worthy to be part of their school, they accept you, right? Um, that's kind of the general idea of righteousness. And we do that in all sorts of different ways in life. Um, and I think, for the most part, most religions in the world think that this is the way that we can be accepted by God, the way that we can approach God, is by trying to bring God, or whatever higher being there is, we need to bring him a performance record that says, this is what I've done, this is how hard I've tried, these are the good things that I've accomplished. And based on our performance, we are hoping that God will accept us that God will look at us and say, you are worthy, you are righteous. But Paul, in Romans, says, no, that's actually not the way that God works at all. The true living God um, basically tells us that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, we cannot prove that we are worthy enough to be accepted by him. We can't. But the good news that Paul reminds us of, he says, actually, what God does for us is he, he provides a perfect record for us. He provides a perfect record that he wants to give to us that Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And based on Jesus' record and his record alone, I can now stand before God and be accepted and be validated and say, I am worthy. Okay? 
So that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you, you, you cannot approach God, you cannot hope to be accepted by God based on your works, based on your obedience to the laws of God, based on your obedience to the, the rituals that they have. Like he's talking to the Jews, he's saying circumcision isn't enough. The only way that you can hope to be accepted by God is based on what he gives, based on what he has done in Jesus. Because in Jesus we have a perfect record that he offers to give to us. And, and, and if we hold on to Jesus' record and trust in him and what he has given us, then God says, you are accepted. You are loved. I will pour out my favor upon you. And, and so that's what Paul is getting at here in these chapters, in, in chapters three and four in Romans. You, you might be here or you might be listening to this and you might say, well, that's all and good for those, of those people who believe in God, okay? For those who are religious, that's fine. If you care about being accepted by God, then, then that's good. But if I don't really believe that God exists or if, if I don't really care that God accepts me, then what does it matter? But the reality is, and Tim Keller points this out, that, that every single person, whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or not, you are all striving to obtain this kind of righteousness. Paul uses the words righteousness and justification. I, I talked about that last week or a couple weeks ago. Um, both of these words, righteousness and justification, are really translations of the same root word. And I think we all have an understanding, everybody in the world, whether you believe in God or not, have an understanding of the fact that we all are trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to justify our worth. We're trying to justify our importance by all sorts of different things. And you see this in, in um, one example is, I think I've used this illustration before, but in the, in the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the characters is Harold Abrams, I think his name is, and he's a sprinter for Great Britain, and he's, he's, he just longs to be the fastest man in the world and to win the 100-meter sprint at the Olympics. And he's just intense. That's all he cares about. And there's one conversation he's having with this woman, and she's like asking him, like, why are you so driven? Why do you care about this so much? And he says when, when he takes his, his mark on the starting blocks and the gun goes off, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. That's what he says. And I think we all kind of have that similar sense. We need to figure out how can I justify my existence? How can I justify my worth? Another example, and I've used this one before as well, is, is uh, Jim Carrey. If you're familiar with Jim Carrey in 2016, he presented an award at the Golden Globes and they, they introduced him. They said, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winning Jim Carrey. And he comes out and everybody's clapping for him and he steps up to the microphone and he says, yes, that's right. I'm Golden Globe winning Jim Carrey. And everybody kind of chuckles. And he says, you know, when I go to bed at night, I don't dream any ordinary dream. I dream of being three-time Golden Globe winning Jim Carrey. Because then this exhausting search would be over. Then I would be enough. And it's a joke, right? Everybody laughs. It's really funny. But we laugh because we know it's true. We know it's true. You know, even the, the, the most accomplished movie star who's won so many awards, they, they just need that one more. Um, all of us, we, we need that one more thing in order to feel like we are important, we are worthy, we are enough, no matter who you are. And, and we look to all sorts of things to feel that way, whether it's our career or how much money we have or what we've accomplished in life. Um, we, and I mentioned this, I think, last week, too, that we, we look at our children to prove that we are worthy. Um, you know, if, I, if only I could be the perfect dad, 
then I will be enough. Um, I mean, what, what else explains why we go to all sorts of lengths to give our two-year-old the, the most incredible birthday party that the world has ever heard of, you know? Because we need to feel like we've done enough, right? We're all searching, longing for, to justify ourselves. We're longing for righteousness. We're longing for somebody to say, you're enough. You're important. You're significant. You're valuable. And again, Paul says that that final declaration can only come from one place, and that is God himself. And the good news is that he's given it. He's given it through a righteousness that Jesus has obtained. And so that's what we're going to talk about. The, the way that, and, and he points out the way that we receive this righteousness, again, it's not by doing everything right, but it's by faith. And that's what he goes over and over again here in chapter 3 and 4. It's by faith. You receive it by faith. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. How do we receive that righteousness? What is the, what is the nature of the faith that we need to receive this kind of righteousness, to, see, to, to receive God proclaiming over our lives that you're enough? So listen to God's word as I read from Romans chapter 4. Again, I'm reading the whole chapter, even though you don't have the whole thing printed in your bulletin. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along there. It says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised. It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, 
since he was about 100 years old, or when he, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would help us to see your truth clearly, and that you would encourage us and strengthen us and help us to understand what it means to believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul's been saying over and over again that what anyone needs to be justified is faith, right? And he says it over and over again in this passage, too, as you were following along. And, and now he says, speaking of faith, let's look at Abraham. Abraham is the father of Israel. If anyone can teach us something about how to approach God and be justified by God, it has to be him. And he quotes Genesis 15, which we read earlier in the service, right? In verse 3, he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word counted comes up over and over again in this passage, right? It was counted as righteousness, counted as righteousness. That's like a, it's an accounting term. That means like if, if you have a bank account, and somebody, and somebody puts a bunch of money into it, they, they credit that, you know, your, your account with that money, and, uh, and, and they count that money to your account. Um, a lot of people over the past few years, because of COVID, you know, the government has just put money into our bank accounts, right? And we haven't done anything to work for it. Um, in the same way, that's what, that's what this is talking about. If you have faith, if you believe, then what God does is he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he puts it in your account, as if it's yours. And he treats you that way. He says, well done, good and faithful servant, no matter how, no matter who you are, no matter how much you've proven or disproven yourself. And so it says, um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God declared his favor over him. God said, you are enough, Abraham. And so what I want to do is, is look just briefly. We're not going to cover everything in this passage, but, but one of the things that you see here is you see Abraham's relationship with God described in some different ways, and, and Abraham's understanding of who God is. And last week I talked about how faith is understanding that that righteousness is a gift and it's also trusting in what god has done what god says and what god will do that's what we said last week right that's what faith is but this morning i want to talk about a little bit more about how what what is, what is at the core of faith is actually trusting in who god is who is god who do we believe in who is the one that we believe in that gives us the righteousness that we need and so that's what i want to look at these three things Where, who's who's the god that abraham believed in and who is the God that we must believe in if we, and if we want righteousness? Verse 5 says that Abraham believed in a God who justifies the ungodly, first of all. Okay? It doesn't specifically say that Abraham believed in a God who justifies the ungodly, but it does say, you know, Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And then it says in verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Those are kind of parallel, right? So if, if Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness, then he must have believed that God was a God who justifies the ungodly. Well, Abraham was a hero of the Bible, first of all. 
So when you look at Abraham, you don't immediately think, well, that's a really ungodly guy. God, God appeared to him. God spoke to him. God said, go to this foreign land where I'm going to show you. And Abraham did what? He, he listened. He believed. He trusted God. That seems like a pretty godly thing to do. But you don't actually have to go far in Genesis to, to find out that Abraham's not you know, as great as he initially looks. I mean, there's a moment where he goes to a, another country and he's worried about what the king is going to do to him. So he, he basically gives up his wife. He says his wife is his sister and he, and he lets the king basically take his wife. That doesn't seem like a very godly thing to do. Um, and then God gives him this amazing promise that he's going to give him children and make him a father of many nations. And then what does Abraham do? Well, my wife can't have kids, so I must have to like, go about this on my own. And what does he do? He tries to have a child. He does have a child with his wife's servant. That doesn't seem like a really godly thing to do either. Um, and Genesis doesn't even really get into the minutiae of just how hard Abraham probably was to, to, to live with. You know how I know he was hard to live with? Because we're all hard to live with. You know, Abraham, we don't know for sure, but he was probably, you know, if we, he was probably irritable. Um, if he wasn't irritable, he was probably controlling. If he wasn't controlling, he was probably lazy. He was probably insensitive, callous, not, good, not, not a very good listener, you know? All those things are very, very possible because they're true of every single person. You know, we all have this kind of mixture of, of things that make us us that, that kind of revolve around our self-centeredness. And, and Abraham, in order to believe in God, one of the things he needed to know about God is that God was a God who loves people who are not all they're cracked up to be. God is a God who justifies the ungodly. God is, God is a God who moves toward those whose lives are a mess who have things they're ashamed of, who have things that they're, they're, uh, where they regret. God is a God who justifies the ungodly. He looks at those whose lives are a mess and he says, I love you. You're mine. Do you believe in a God who justifies the ungodly? To, to do that is, is, is to admit, first of all, the fact that you yourself are a mess which is, you know, harder for some of us than others. It's to be honest about the truth of the fact that you yourself are hard to love. Um, that you're not better than anyone else, no matter how despicable that other person might be. You're not better. Um, it's to... Um, admit that, that our own, we're all wrapped up in our own selfishness and our own selfishness exhibits itself in its, its own unique way, probably in a way that we are oblivious to. We probably don't even notice how much of a mess we really are. This is how you receive God's righteousness, only when you recognize that God is a God who loves to move towards those who are unworthy, those who are undeserving that's exactly the sort of people that God moves towards and wants to pour out his righteousness on. Wants to pour out his declaration and say, you are enough. Well done, good and faithful servant. He only says that to people who are ungodly, you realize this, other than Jesus. And it's only because of Jesus. And the thing is, once we understand that, 
and I know I've said this a million times in different ways, I think, but, but once we begin to understand that, that none of us are worthy of God's love, but that's exactly who God loves, those who are unworthy, it, first of all, ignites in us just a baseline sense of joy that we could be loved like that. That we could be loved just as we are with all of our flaws. But then on top of that, it, as we understand that, as we really understand that and own it, it enables us to really begin to love the people around us better in a way that's really helpful. Because it, it, it enables us to actually be patient with people around us when they don't meet our expectations, when they fail us. It enables us to, to be gracious. It enables us to be more quick to forgive when I realize that I'm actually as much of a mess as anybody else in this room. It enables me to be quick to forgive. It enables me to become a person who is safe for other people who are broken to be around. It enables me to, to actually be able to love people really well. And so we need to believe that God is God who justifies the ungodly in order to receive righteousness because that's, that's all that we are. If you don't think you're ungodly, then there's no way you're going to get God's, the righteousness that he offers because you don't think you need it. Secondly, Abraham also believed that God wanted to make him an heir. God, Abraham believed that God wanted to make him an heir. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So Abraham understood as God came to him and made this promise that, that he, was, he was going to, to make him into a great nation. He was going to give him children. He was going to give him land. He was going to give him himself. What he was saying is as, as God made these promises to Abraham, God, God was encouraging Abraham to understand that he was to, he was to be an heir an heir of the world. What is an heir? What is an heir? An heir is a person who has the, a right to inherit wealth from someone else because that other person has promised it to them, basically, right? That's what an heir is. A person who has a right to inherit wealth from another because that person has promised it to them. Usually, an heir is someone that you have a relationship with. Often, an heir is, is someone that's part of your family, right? That's who's going to get the inheritance. That's who you would promise the inheritance to. This is the opposite of a relationship that is a contract, right? Where I enter into a contract with somebody and I do the right things and then I get stuff from them. No, this is the opposite of that. It's all based on a promise. God promised to work in Abraham's life, to provide for Abraham, to give Abraham more than he could even imagine. And so... When God made these promises to Abraham, God was saying, I want you to be my heir. In other words, I want you to be in relationship with me. I want you to be part of my family. And I want you to know that your future is secure. That's what he was encouraging Abraham to believe. That, that he was a child of God and that his future was not in doubt. That he was secure. That, that he had wealth awaiting him that he couldn't even comprehend. Now, do you believe that God wants to make you an heir? 
that he has made you an heir, that, that his desire for you is to be part of his family, to be his child. Sinclair Ferguson is a, a pastor and theologian, and one of the things he says is that the, the, one of the, the clearest marks of a person who understands what it means to be a Christian, what, who understands the gospel really, is how well you understand yourself to be a child of God. Do you understand, it, 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 as you look at all of your life, do you look at, it, look at it all through the filter of the fact that I am God's son or daughter? I'm his heir. And, and in the midst of that, that uh, to be an heir is, to, is to, to know that your future is not in doubt, right? To be an heir is to, is to be confident, is to live out of the security that I know God is going to take care of me because he has promised it, not because I've earned it. Lastly, Abraham believed in a God who gives life to the dead. In the words of verse 17, um, and this is where I, it's, it's discouraging sometimes to kind of work on a message for Sundays because I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm reading this this week and thinking about it and praying through it and I'm like, I can't do justice to this. And um, I was talking to Kim about this. And she's like, maybe you should just read it and sit down, you know? <laughs> I was like, well, then they're going to start wondering what they're paying me for, you know? <laughs> but maybe I should. I mean, he reminds us this is who God is. He gives life to the dead and brings things into existence that do not exist. That's who God is. That's how powerful he is. Think about that in light of your life. Think about what Abraham was dealing with in his life as God made this unbelievable promise to him that he was going to have children. And it says right in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And then it, talks, it continues on in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. All of the evidence around him was like, this is not going to happen. Everything, everywhere he looked around him, when he thought, when he thought about the promise that God made to him that he was going to have a child, he looked at his own body. All he saw was death. He's 100 years old. He looked at Sarah's body. All he saw was death. She was barren. She was not able to have children for as long as they'd been together. There's no way this could happen. And yet, God invited him to believe that God could do what was impossible in the midst of their brokenness and their pain and their emptiness, right? Right? That's what God invited Abraham to believe. That's what Abraham's faith, that was, was, was a big part of Abraham's faith, that he believed that God could do what was not possible in the midst of his limitations and his brokenness and his hopelessness. Do you believe in a God who gives life to the dead? Do you believe in a God who gives life to the dead, who's able to call into existence the things that do not exist? God invites us to trust him, especially in the midst of the stuff all around us that tempts us to lose hope. He invites us to trust him, to be able to, to work in the midst of, of all sorts of things where we're like, all I see is hopelessness. There's no way anything good could come of this, right? Because we are surrounded by all sorts of stuff that moves us to be like, there's no, there's no way. There's no way. You know, whether it's our own health, 
our bodies failing, experiencing death, people we love who are going through things that are incredibly overwhelming and impossible, whether it's physical or mental. When we think about maybe our own, our own job, our work, maybe our career feels like it's at a complete standstill, it's dead, or it feels completely empty and devoid of meaning. Or we have with mental health. Habits that are, that are bringing destruction to ourselves or others that we love. And God says, listen, you need to hope against all hope. And your hope is well-founded because I am more than able, as Ephesians 3 says, to do immeasurably more than all you can imagine. He's a God who gives life to the dead. This is the kind of faith to which God counts righteousness. This is the kind of faith where we we cling to God and count on him to love me, even though I'm unworthy and I'm a mess. When we cling to God and count on him to take care of me because I'm his child. When I cling to God in the midst of the death and the hopelessness of my life and count on him to bring life. You know, as I talk about him bringing life in the midst of our hopeless situations, this, this doesn't mean that we count on him to fix all my problems today. I have to say this, right? Or that he's, he's going to fix all my problems next week or even in a couple months or, or, or even that he's going to fix any of my problems in the next few years. But it is to believe that he can and he might and he will one day solve every problem. This is the kind of faith that, that trusts God to do what we cannot do. the kind of faith that results in the approval of a God and and God saying, you are enough. It says, I'm not good enough and never will be. I need to trust in your undeserved goodness given to me. It says, my security stems from the fact that I am part of your family because of this, I will have all I need. And it says, God's forgiveness and making me new, think about this, is more miraculous than even bringing the dead to life, that God would actually forgive me and make me part of his family is a miracle in and of itself. To love me when I've proven myself to even be his enemy at times. All these things, God's mercy, his love, his power, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. That's where we see it all. That's where he he encourages us to focus our hearts, focus our eyes, focus our minds on the person of Jesus. And that's where he leaves us, right at the end, verse 25, verse 24 and 25. He says, I'll start at 23. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Do you believe? Do you trust him? He raised Jesus to help you. 
to help you see that he is enough and his love is enough for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we, we pray, Father, that, that we would not go away from here and forget what you've reminded us of. That we would continue to think about and meditate on the fact that you are a God who moves towards those whose lives are a mess. That you are a God who wants to embrace us as your children and, and let us know that, that we don't have to worry. That you're a God who actually can make a difference and bring healing in the midst of our lives where we face things that seem impossible. Help us to cling to you and trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to meet Jesus at the Lord's table, we're going to uh, confess our sin together.